You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hi, my name is Stephanie Halfley. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I'm here today to talk with Peter Becky, the director of the Hayek Program, as well as the university professor of philosophy, economics and philosophy at George Mason University. And we're going to talk about our tensions and political economy series with Mercatus. We have a trilogy of books that have come out over the past several years on Buchanan's tensions, came out in 2018, Ostrom's tensions in 2019, and Hayek's tensions in 2020. We want to talk about sort of the beginning of the series and why we think it's important and some of the lessons we've learned along the way. Thanks, Pete, for joining me. Oh, thanks, Stephanie. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Great. So the series really brought about um, kind of picking up on uh, these scholars that we hold to high regard, but have a lot, a huge research program that covers different disciplines and topics. And the idea behind it was to really kind of dig into uh, gaps and shortcomings in the large research programs, real or apparent, and kind of dig into those ideas. Why was it important for you to start, that we start this series on tensions in political economy? Well, um, first, it, I want to reiterate a point that you just made, which is that in someone like Hayek's career, his first published papers were in 1920s, and his last published output is in the late 1980s. And he ranged across disciplines from economics to philosophy to politics, all, you know, to anthropology, history, you know, all these kind of, of issues. And that's also true, though less maybe the number of disciplines that one sees in Buchanan, who starts writing in 1940 and, and, and is, you know, uh, I saw him six months before he passed away. And I asked him, he gave a paper, and I said, how was he doing? And his comment to me was, well, I'm not too happy with my paper. I got to go home and do some more revising. And he's in his 90s. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, how wonderful would it be to have that kind of you know, career? And it's also true of Eleanor, though. Unfortunately, her life was cut shorter uh, you know, due to illness. But she was a battler all the way to the end, even presenting lectures and stuff while she was sick and, and all these are all very inspiring people. And they, they have a devoted research program that spreads across the social sciences. So it's hard to refer to them as economists per se, because they're instead social scientists, social theorists that have economics as part of it. And so they have this big agenda. And anyone who writes across so many decades and across so many disciplines has insight and depth, but they're also going to have, you know, problems and blind spots and all kinds of things like that. And so one of the things that makes us different, I think, as a program from the beginning was our belief that self-criticism is more productive than self-congratulations. So we, we, we tend to stare ourselves in the mirror and say, like, what are we not getting right, rather than, isn't it great what we've achieved or whatever? And 
I think when you do that and you do it in a productive way, you end up by achieving more and, may, and keeping the ball moving forward more. And so another way to think about this is, is in these three thinkers, the way that we approach it, or, or the group of us approach it, you and myself and Virgil and Chris and you know, all the faculty that are involved in the, in the Hayek program and the graduate students we get to work with is that uh, um, they have a, a shared common window through which they see the world. If you wanna get very abstract about it, they're all at some level playing off these tensions between methodological individualism and compositive methodology which makes up for spontaneous order studies or whatever is what they're doing. So I, we see these thinkers as sharing a, a, a common window scientifically, but different points of emphasis in each of them. And so each of them sees through the window slightly different than the others. And so originally, you know, our basic idea was is that they would each fill in gaps of the other. So, you know, um, Hayek, uh, you know, talks about uh, these spontaneous processes and whatnot, but Buchanan puts a little bit more emphasis on the framework within which spontaneous order processes come about, but he tends to think about the frameworks as coming out of this rational deliberation, whereas Eleanor sees constitutions as being built from the bottom up. And so at some level, we can like merge and mix and combine Hayek, Buchanan, and Ostrom, and we can get something different than either Hayek, Buchanan, or Ostrom on their own. And so that was the sort of the first of it is why is it that we want to have a research agenda which blends Austrian, Virginia, and Bloomington. And as you know from the work that you and I did on the, the mainline book, you know, we're trying to make an argument that there's a tradition in economics that goes all the way back to Adam Smith and continues all the way up to today, which puts a, a primary explanatory focus on the variation of institutions. So we derive the invisible hand from the rational choice postulate via institutions. And it's those people that that research program where we fit Buchanan and Hayek and Ostrom into that we're trying to then you know, develop. So then if we're doing this research program where we're trying to do these combinatorial ideas, we have to first identify where the gaps are that each one of them are filling in for the other. So that's one of the tensions. But then the other tension is that within that new refined program, where are we still seeing blind spots? You know, are we actually dressing? And, and again, you know, these were very, very smart people. And so they often highlighted where they might have seen tensions. So for example, on the issue of power, Eleanor recognizes that these groups can solve these collective action problems, but she also recognizes that who gets to, to help shape the groups is an issue of power. And so power might matter a lot if your goal is to try to have a society where the rules neither exhibit discrimination nor domination. So, you know, the, the way we put these people together, we, we then end up by thinking of it in terms of this broader, you know, sort of modern cosmopolitan liberal or Republican project in which, you know, people are granted this, this uh, you know, uh, dignity and equality to each and every one of us that uh, we're one another's dignified equals and we want to have a rules regime in which the policies and the, and the political structures exhibit neither discrimination nor dominion. Well, you know, no society has ever achieved that yet. So there's tensions in that project. It's not that the project is 
impossible. It's unfinished. It's an unfinished agenda, which again, you know, uh, Lavoie's book, this is the final chapter in Don Lavoie's National Economic Planning, What is Left? It's about finishing a revolution rather than abandoning. So let me get back to the science of it and then I'll wrap up. I apologize for being long-winded, but I think that if uh, what we want to do is want to see how this Virginia, Austrian, Virginia, Bloomington uh, framework or combination uh, improves our theoretical and empirical research program. And the lessons learned enable us to envision a set of social arrangements where we could, you know, live better together than we ever could in separation. And we mean that, you know, in a twofold kind of way as a project. You know, one being the actual reality that we as citizens live better in thriving communities than we ever would in isolation from one another, and that we scientists actually make more progress when we engage in these combinatorial exercises and multiple methods and borrowing from them. So each of these tensions, books, are hoping to identify what you might call intellectual holes, to borrow a phrase from, uh, you know, uh, the structural holes kind of idea in, in, in Bert, uh, so the um, sociologist, and we see these, these structural holes where we're trying to act intellectually entrepreneurial to combine again to maybe solve them and we're calling on other scholars to help us identify those. And this conversation is just starting. It's not completed. These are three volumes, <clears throat> but it's, it's just the beginning of the exercise. That was long-winded. Sorry. I'll be shorter. <laughs> no worries. Um, you know, I think, you know, a question I might have is, you know, sort of the way I think about academia is very much and what our role is as social science scientists is very much grounded in this idea of what we do here at Mason and with the Hayek program. And so, you know, I kind of see a lot of academic research being about exploiting gaps and tensions and flaws in existing academic literature, combining literatures, you know, when you're writing a paper and you're saying what your contribution is, you're, you're pinpointing those things. However, it seems like it's rare to dedicate space to exploring tensions and flaws of key thinkers that you utilize a lot in your research, right? That idea of pointing out the flaws and sort of intellectual heroes in sort of a way. And one thing I learned through this process was how kind of commonplace this idea of finding tensions and flaws is, but also the balance between, you know, talking about them as flaws and tensions rather than just kind of gaps in the literature. Yeah. And so, you know, we can often spend a lot of time building off of and using the aspects we find in useful thinkers. And we might, you know, shy away from talking about some of the, the flaws. How do you think we, you know, what is it about this discussion that's important for kind of embracing this more contestation approach to thinking about these ideas? And, and how much do you think that's kind of built in with the environment we've created here at Mason, the way we approach social science is the way I think about it right or is it unique to how we how we encourage research um, at the Hayek program? All right so uh, first I think it's very very common for people to identify tensions in the people they don't like. So you wouldn't be surprised yeah. if I wrote a piece on the tensions in Keynes 
<laughs> you know, exposition by Pete Betke. No one in the world would be surprised about that. Or if I said, you know, Oscar Longa had some gaps in his, his explanation of market socialism, people would be like, yep, uh, I'm pretty sure I know that Pete's going to say that. But if I turned around and I said, hey, there are these gaps in Mises, or there are these gaps in Buchanan, or there's these gaps in Hayek or of Kersner or whatever, or blind spots in these thinkers that we need to work on. I, uh, uh, so I think that people are very common. Uh, it's a very common thing. And I, and I think that this is one of the real challenges of uh, Daniel Dennett's rules of intellectual engagement, which is to not take the cheap shots at your opponents, but instead uh, you know, be able to appreciate what your opponents are having to say before you actually then can criticize them, um, which might mean that you also have to be able to criticize your own position. You know, it's an old adage that the, the you know, the easiest person to fool is yourself, right, about like, you know, your arguments, whatever. All right, so that, that's just a general academic, you know, uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, wisdom or whatever is, you know, don't allow yourself to be fooled by your own, you know, but we fall into those traps all the time. But precisely to your question, um, I think three of the thinkers that are very much apart. So we emphasize Buchanan and Hayek and Ostrom, but the reality is, is that they worked in partnerships with various different people. And three of those those people that I want to mention here are going to be uh, Vincent Ostrom, uh, Richard Wagner, and Gordon Tullock, okay? And uh, the reason why I'm bringing them up is precisely on this issue. And the Tullock one is going to be very surprising to most listeners. <clears throat> but if you look at Vincent Ostrom, one of the books that many of us read and, and ponder over is his uh, book um, called uh, The Meaning of Democracy and the Vulnerabilities of Democracies. And in that, he talks about whether or not public choice as a research program has ground to a halt because it's become just ordinary science. It's just an appendage to neoclassical price theory. And he argues that progress won't be made in political science if public choices is viewed as normal science. The application of homo economicus and economic models to understand political. So think about you know, spatial competition and the median voter hypothesis or something like that, or the self-interested motivation of voters and you know, these things. He says, we've already run the ground of those and there's nothing really surprising. We've exhausted those possibilities. But he says that that's not what was interesting about public choice back when it was founded. <laughs> when it was founded, what made public choice fascinating was that those, that economic lens exposed tensions and paradoxes. And so we had things like the paradox of revolution. And we had, you know, other kinds of anomalies and tensions and, and all this stuff throughout. And that's the source of our scientific progress is by tackling those things. So right off the bat, Vincent is telling us we have to look for where the, the parts don't, the, the puzzle pieces don't quite fit. And it's in that where the puzzle pieces don't fit that we'll find something. Now, Dick Wagner actually has a stronger argument philosophically about why this is the case. His argument is, is remember that we're dealing with process philosophy. And process philosophy is different than you know, an airtight logical system. So Wagner says that the appropriate way of reasoning when you're dealing with processes and evolutionary change 
is to have plausible reasoning rather than demonstrative reasoning. And all of the modeling exercises in the social sciences are built on demonstrative reasoning, not plausible reasoning. Now, if we move towards plausible reasoning, we get fuzzier, right? But we might actually get more. So we be so by moving to demonstrative reasoning, we get more and more precise about less and less, right? But whereas if we move to plausible reasoning, we actually are in this like sort of literary borderland between economics, sociology, philosophy, all these things like that. And so we don't have the kind of single exit definitive answers. The world isn't smooth and continuous and twice differentiable, you know, and all these kind of things. And so that, because of that, we're going to be in this kind of weird space, which is going to be where we have, you know, contingencies and ironies and all of these kind of fascinating aspects of social life. So Wagner, in his most recent book, he develops that further by contrasting the contrast between micro and macro. And what he does in that is he says that there's the law of the excluded middle, which is a logical law, right? Just like the non-contradiction and other things. But he says, actually, the reality is, and the way he's thinking about it is you have a world of order and you have a world of turbulence. And his argument is that if you follow the law of the excluded middle, the logic of the excluded middle, then it's going to be either or, right? It, it can't be, it, you're either in order or you're in chaos. But the reality is, is that in the world that we live in, we're like orderly chaos. And if you think about that from a spontaneous order point of view, that's what we're trying to argue all along, right? It's, it's sort of this, this unusual kind of you know, uh, research program, which already has to have these contingencies and, and whatnot built in. And the final one is Gordon Tullock. And this is a little known fact that Gordon Tullock wrote a book on the philosophy of science. It's called the, the, the Organization of Inquiry. And of course, he applies homo economicus like he did in everything to it. And, you know, and, he, and it, it's, it's snarky and brilliant at the same time, the way Gordon Tullock is on everything. <clears throat> and in doing that exercise, we learn a little bit of things. But he had an appendix that didn't get published, but it was appendix reflecting on flatlands. So the, the, the you know, the, the parable told by the mathematician in the late 19th century about a world in, in which a line is confronted by a circle and you know and the and the line can't understand the world of the circle right because it's a it's a different dimension they only can see the world on their lands this is what the flatlands are and so the circle comes in but what's fascinating is eventually in the story the line gets drawn uh, moved to another dimension right so outside of the of the the one dimension gets moved to another you know dimension and then says to the sphere Oh my God! There's other dimensions, and the and the circle responds back, says, "No, no, no, no! There isn't. There's only my you know dimension." And so once you recognize that, you recognize the issue of perspectivism. And so when I'm teaching, one of the examples I use to the students, uh, and I don't know if it's any good, so you'll tell me if it's any good. But I I kind of I use this metaphor of looking through the window, but then I say, imagine it's a prism, okay? And what happens is that you know, what Eleanor does, for example, is she looks through the same prism, uh, a beginning that Mansur Olson is looking through, right? So that's why the beginning of governing the commons, she goes through the standard 
you know, game theory, tragedy of the commons kind of thing. And then what she does is say, huh, well, in the prisoner's dilemma, the prisoners are prisoners. How about if we actually gave the prisoners volition and so they could construct their own rules under which they play the game? Well, what she does in doing that is she slightly twists the prism. And now all of a sudden, a whole bunch of different colors illuminate about the complexity of the world. And so what we're trying to do is, is same thing with Hayek. Hayek is, you know, looking at the same kind of arguments that all other economists are about role of prices. And then he sits there and says, well, okay, so how about if the knowledge that the agents have in the system are more that the theorists never could have because it's a knowledge of time and place? They, they twist, you know, this prism and then it illuminates. And similarly with Buchanan saying that we should view, you know, politics as exchange rather than as politics from top down by, you know, some fisc, right? <laughs> Instead, it's all. And, and what they do is they change this prism. And to me, what we're trying to do is follow up on that, except what we've done is we've tried to merge those three prisms and then see what happens when we twist it to like the work that they're doing. Because none of them, they all touched on one another's work. And that's actually a fact. And not, not, not Hayek to Ostrom, but Hayek the Ostroms to Hayek through Vincent, okay? But Buchanan to Hayek and then Hayek, Buchanan to the Ostroms is definitely a very tight connection. Uh, but I'm pretty sure, you know, Hayek didn't even know about what the Ostroms were up to because, you know, they're at the back just by timing issues or whatever. Um, though he would have been very, very favorable to Vincent's work on federalism, I think, because he himself was a defender of, of decentralized uh, mechanisms like in his essay, Interstate Federalism or whatever. But, um, but he's unaware of, of that kind of work. I mean, his, you know, and uh, like one way to think about this is the Constitutional Liberty is 1960 and law, law legislation and liberty is basically completed by 73. And, you know, we're talking about like the meaning of American federalism and all those other books are post that. So they're just not in the same time frame. Whereas he was familiar with the calculus of consent, the logic of collective action, that kind of stuff, you know. So anyway, by twisting this prism, we see these different colors emerge. And then the question is, is whether or not the painting that's being depicted of the social universe, whether or not that's itself got distortions in it. And what are we missing that we need to then add in? And these volumes are made up of people who are deeply knowledgeable about these writers and share with us this kind of exploratory temperament. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Getting to the um, contributors of the volumes, um, you know, I think, you know, looking across all three, you have students of these scholars, yeah. colleagues, uh, some critics or kind of friendly critics, I guess would be the way to think about it. Um, you know, kind of reflecting on who we've gotten to contribute, um, you know, sort of, are there chapters that you think are particularly interesting or, or things you learned as yeah. we went through this process that you want to talk about? So, yeah, so let me use the Buchanan volume to start and then I'll, then I'll go through the other ones if I can. So I actually, so in the Buchanan volume, again, I think 
uh, through across all of them, there's very good essays, you know, uh, people grappling with aspects, just like you said, former students of these people, but also then, you know, colleagues of them and, and whatnot. But, but uh, we did, you know, but uh, I would say that Randy Holcomb piece in the Buchanan volume is, is actually very fascinating because he's asking a fundamental question, which is whether or not the concept of consent can do in Buchanan's work what Buchanan hopes it to be. Okay, uh, not that Holcomb goes all the way with this, but Leland Yeager, who was a close colleague of Buchanan, he always used to put quote marks around the notion of unanimity because his argument in, the, as we know, the argument in the calculus of consent is one of conceptual unanimity because he can't have complete unanimity because the organizational costs would be too high. So, you know, one of the great strengths of the book is it recognizes these trade-offs and makes these kind of things like that. But what it does do by doing that is actually give up on the idea that consent is going to be the only way. And what Holcomb does is he does a deep dive into high, uh, Buchanan's uh, limits of liberty to see whether or not you can do that. I think it's a really, really important piece. Along those lines, and I, I'm not saying this just because you're on the line, but I think the piece that you and Virgil wrote for that volume is extremely important because one of the key issues that we're trying to think about Again, in all of these areas, social cooperation is very easy to understand if the groups that are cooperating are small and homogeneous and have very, uh, you know, uh, low discount rates, right? That is, is that uh, they, they can wait it out. <laughs> so if they are the same people and they're in a small group, so reputation does the whole job, and they don't get any real bennies by having short run grabbing of, you know, the resources, they can get along because, right, they can just get along and, and they can figure out how to realize the gains from social cooperation. But that's not the world that we live in. And no one wants to say that that's the only world that any of my ideas are applicable to. So Buchanan, you know, goes through various different bites of the apple to see about how we could live better together in a large group setting of heterogeneous agents. And his ideas, just like what we just said with Holcomb, rely a lot on consent. That's one of the great strengths in Buchanan. It's all about how we can come to agreement. None of us have a red line to God. We, we, we can't rely on that to give us agreement, right? I know you don't know that kind of thing. Not, we have to come to an agreement. But then Buchanan introduces this idea of reasonableness, right? And, and that, has so much stuff packed into it that, and you guys tear that apart and look into it and think about it and everything like that. And so again, you know, it's not like you're saying reasonableness is stupid, right? And, and it's like, okay, what do we mean by this idea? And can we operationalize it? And how does that fit in a, in a society of heterogeneous actors? And, you know, and, and you know, Buchanan and Tulloch themselves and the calculus as you, as you know, make this argument that if there are sharp social cleavages, right, their theory doesn't apply if you have permanent winning coalitions that, that you know, drive out of that, which is part of the reason why Buchanan always wants this turn-taking idea and other kinds of things. But that relies, again, on us being very reasonable about things. And as we just witnessed, we have a lot of unreasonable <laughs> politics. Right. That I mean, how many days over the last 
you know, 90, day, 90 days of your life have you thought and said, oh, today's the day that reasonableness will once again, you know, come back and, you know, they'll just say, okay, you know, you know, I, I, I lost that challenge. So I guess it's over, you know, I, I'm going to allow the process to move on. And so if we ever had an issue where the tensions of the notion of reasonableness and the nature and heterogeneous politics and the way people see the world differently and how do you get those social cleavages to be not so sharp, but to be dulled so that we can have differences, but yet interact and live better together. And your paper identifies that we've seen it when it goes bad here. So I think that paper is really valuable in there. And uh, so those would be the two that I would highlight in there, though, of course, I'm very partial to anything that uh, Wagner writes about Buchanan and the liberal project. Um, in the Hayek volume, uh, again, you know, I'm very close to a lot of these arguments. Um, I really like the way Peter Lewin and, uh, does a summary of Hayek and, and planning and capital theory and the way Larry White describes Hayek's evolutionary uh, evolution as a monetary theorist. But I think the paper that I would say identifies most the spirit that we were talking is Paul Lewis. So Paul Lewis really does a deep dive into methodological tensions in Hayek as he evolves throughout his career. And he moves from someone who is really focused on the differences between the human sciences and the natural sciences to someone who's studying the sciences of complexity. And, and, you know, and, and, what, and can you square those, the, the emphasis on the human sciences and the emphasis on complexity versus simple phenomena? And you know, Lewis is, has great skills as a critical thinker. I mean, he's one of the, in my career, uh, I would say that his skills in my set of people that I've interacted with, his skills and Dave Perchicko's skills, as being someone who can tear an argument apart and really find, you know, the flaws in an argument that you think is crystal clear. Uh, you know, they're not always the most fun people to have read your papers, I'll tell you that, but, <laughs> but they, they actually, at the end of the day, are, the, are very fruitful because they, they pick at scabs. So one way to think about, like, someone who picks at scabs is either the, the, the scab goes away and the wound is healed, or you keep having the wound fester and stuff, right? So, I mean, it's kind of a gross analogy, I guess, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's the reality. And I think that, you know, if you can have Dave or Paul pick away at your argument and you can, you know, see the scabs and they pick those scabs, but then your wound is healed, you, you probably have a pretty good argument. And, you know, and, and, you know, they might disagree because you think you're, you're healed and they think you're still festering, you know, and whatever. <laughs> but I, I, when I read Paul Lewis's piece in that volume, I learned something, all right? And, and uh, Paul, I think, is, has that great gift of being able to identify weak spots and potentials and take it in a different direction. I don't always agree with the direction he goes in things or the absolutism of what he said. Because again, go back to Wagner. I think you can square a lot of circles and other people are, are not believing that you can square the circle. And some might say that my belief in squaring circles or Wagner's is a sign of our confused thinking or whatever. But I actually think that it's, it's a sign of us embracing the world that we live in, which is uh, one of my professors, Kenneth Balding, used to say that the real world is a muddle and it would be a shame if we weren't confused about it. 
And That's so that, that goes back to your point about tensions, right? And, yeah. and, and if you think about this, one of the things that makes, this is gonna sound weird, but I, I do think it makes our environment different than other environments that have been devoted to pursuing Austrian economics in particular, is that a lot of people think of Austrian economics as providing a definitive answer to important questions that are settled for all time. And then the question is just a matter of a audience that's not listening. So you got to figure out a way for the audience to listen to the message, which is unchanging and universally true. And I think that the Austrians are full of tremendous insights and, 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 and in many ways, wisdoms, you could use that term, and scientific uh, frameworks, which are productive, but that it's ongoing and adjusting for at least for the issue of the fact that the institutions in which we operate are shifting and therefore the way the logic of choice plays out. So to me, I think the big problem with a lot of Austrians is they forget that it's, it's playing out of two logics, a logic of choice and situational logic. And the situational logic is taking the, the, the logic of choice and throwing it into different alternative institutional arrangements, which will then, you know, determine different like processes and filters. And it's that, that ground of the logic of the situation that plays such a major part in our social science applied. And so if, if uh, you know, our rules about money and banking have changed, the way the business cycle will manifest is going to change. If our rules about, you know, uh, tort law change, right? And the, the way in which, you know, we end up by dealing, uh, you know, with uh, harms is going to change uh, in terms of our COSIAN bargains and everything like that. And, so, and indirect COSIAN bargain. So <clears throat> the devil is always in the details. And that's one of the things Lynn really taught us, the devil's in the details. And so... You know, Hayek doesn't say that as much, right? I mean, he said he gives us, and certainly Mises gives us the logic of choice, and we learn, you know, the the, the basic, you know, tenets of, of of the importance of purposive action and the logic of, of of action and choice, but it always plays out in an institutional context, and so we have to be creative about what that filter process is, and we have to be patient and detailed about what the institutional framework is that we're dealing as the context. And so I think, you know, by, by critically identifying, tearing apart, uh, we have that. Let me just get to the Ostrom volume. And, uh, and so I mentioned in the Hayek volume, and then, and, I, and again, I don't mean any disrespect for any of the people I'm not mentioning, because I'm thrilled that they all contribute to this. I'm just picking out some examples. And then in the Ostrom volume, I would say that, again, Adam Martin, who's one of our, uh, you know, students from our program, who I learn a tremendous amount every time I read him. I think he thinks very, very deep about a lot of questions. And the way he goes about and discussing the nature of polycentric governance in that in this paper and uh, the issues associated with what allows those filters to operate or not operate or whatever. Uh, to me, I think is a really good paper um, and, and very helpful. Um, and I also really like the paper by Aurelian Cartu. I think that's how, he, how he's, I think I'm saying his name correctly. Um, but Aurelian 
who again, I don't necessarily share completely his position on moderation because I think sometimes it can be too wishy-washy about you know moderation. But I think this paper really gets at the essence of what why the Ostrom's work matters for a self-governing democratic society. So if you think about the, 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 I tried to pair these papers, by the way, that's why I think I did. But, but if you, uh, the reason why the, 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 the uh, Martin paper is important is because he gives you the guts about what it is, the analytics of why you have a self-governing polycentric system. But Aurelian gives you the vision. All right, so here's a vision of a pluralistic society. None of us have a phone line to God. All right, we all have our differences. You're heterogeneous society, right? And yet they explain what glue allows us to have that be a democratic society. And that means that we have to adopt these certain positions so that we can rule with one another rather than ever allow us to try to rule over one another. And Aurelian identifies that and identifies where we would have to go in that. And obviously that's an unfinished project because it's so easy for us to fall into, again, the governing over rather than the governing with. And I think this is something that is an ongoing conversation. And so this is the last thing I'll say about the tensions in these different volumes. The one reason why I love that we did this is because it reinforces the idea that what we are trying to promote is a conversation that is ongoing, not a conversation about something that has stopped growing. So it's a conversation in which it's endogenous, it, the growth of the research program is endogenous to the quality of the conversation that's being cultivated, rather than that the research program is fixed and given, and then you just wanna promote it out there. Our idea is that by seeing this as living and improving and doing it, and again, this goes back to, again, I, I'm not trying to say that I've anticipated everything, but there's a reason why my book is called Living Economics. It, it's not called Economics for the Living. <laughs> it's Living Economics. And the reason is, is because economics and why you have this tree as the symbol on the cover of that, which is that it has deep roots and that's the intellectual traditions, these wisdom and everything like that. But the tree is vibrant by it's growing these new branches and going in different ways and all these things like that. And what you want is a vibrant, healthy, intellectual tree. So it's deeply rooted, but it's not stuck at those roots. It's constantly moving and evolving. And that's what I think these volumes and the work, you know, the research work that you're doing and the research, you know, programs, that's why I like, you know, I, that, that's why the pandemic has been pissed me off so much. Besides, you know, the existential threat to humanity, it pissed me off because it stopped us from meeting in the office and having these conversations and, and running all these things. And, and to me, this is something I look forward to every week when we would get in our seminars and our discussions and work with everything, because we're constantly trying to push out frontiers as we see it. Um, and uh, and I, I realize other people are doing that too, but... I, I, at least within our, our tradition or whatever, I think that the combination of the respect for the roots, but the desire to have branching and new directions is unique. Um, I'll go out on the limb and say that.
Yeah, I think, you know, something that came to mind as you were talking and particularly about sort of the characteristics and kind of principles that these thinkers advocated as well as this idea of, of contestation. And you talk a lot about that, but it's not just with our opponents, right? It's this idea of contestation with ourselves, our peers, our past selves, our future selves, and these ideas. And so this idea of kind of looking at academic research as a process, just like the processes we study, I think is really important because it's really easy to slip down that path of precision prediction, kind of clean solutions. And a lot of these thinkers and particularly, you know, you bringing up Vincent Ostrom and Richard Wagner and Gordon Tullock's piece is this idea of how, how messy and complicated we are and how we have to constantly kind of readjust. And so, you know, I think that's something that we try to do in our programs and the series. Um, but could you talk a little bit about like how you see this view of contestation and, and how that really applies to not just what we're studying, but sort of the way we go about the yeah. research as well. So there's a, this is going to be a little too um, uh, cheesy to start, uh, actually, um, which is I want to talk about uh, Vincent and Lynn for a second um, and an academic love story. And I really do uh, hope people go and look at Barbara Allen's film uh, if they're listening to this and uh, um, or send an email to Bobby Hersberg and try to talk to them. I mean, the, the people the older generation of people that knew the Ostroms from their beginnings is, is, is um, not as prevalent as it was when I was, you know, grow, you know, growing up into this stuff. Um, and so, um, but uh, there, there was some very special about the way that they interacted with each other and with the people around them. And in her famous book, all right, her, her uh, dedication is to Vincent, for his love and contestation, okay? Now, I will tell you, when I gave a seminar at the workshop when I was just out of graduate school, um, I didn't really like Vincent's contestation very much, <laughs> all right? Because he would interrupt you in the middle of a talk and ask you to define words, and you know, it seemed like this whole thing. Now, when I read him and I listen to him and he talks about the connection between words and deeds. And I understand why it is that words mattered so much to them. And I think this is, this is one of the reasons why they are so inspiring. They, they didn't call their center, right? The, 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 the center, right? For, for institute, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, out there in, in Indiana, they called it the workshop, right? The workshop. And the reason why it's a workshop is because of the nature of the process by which you actually generate knowledge, all right? It wasn't just a name for them. It actually had real meaning. And so this issue of contestation and the interaction between faculty and graduate students and the idea of uh, graduate students as apprenticeships, working with masters, masters as being citizens as well as artisans within the, within the social sciences and whatnot, all this stuff is like so critical and has been a very big influence in the way that we've tried to, to do things, all right? In which we give ownership to projects to kids, you know, when they're 22, 23 years old, right? And, 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 and try to work along with them and, and develop that. And 
Um, so I think this issue, and, and how do you hone those skills? You hone those skills in an environment that's encouraging, but honest, right? So it has to be honest because it has to, when you go down the wrong way, it has to somehow say, look, that's not going to work. That, that approach isn't going to work. And, and, and so by creating this kind of environment in which we can criticize ideas without criticizing people, but criticizing ideas is an earned right by listening first. So you have to listen and then understand to criticize. So it's not, so this again, it, it, it's an old McCloskey point, which is that you wanted to have seminars which were focused on imminent criticisms, not transcendent criticisms. And McCloskey liked to use the difference between George Stigler and Milton Friedman. So he said that George Stigler, you would come in and give a seminar and he would say, why did you even work on this paper? Only an idiot would work on a paper like this. I would never work on a paper. With your skills, I would have worked on this paper instead, okay? Milton Friedman, when people came in to give a talk, he would say, I'm unconvinced by your argument. However, if I was to make your argument, I would use X, Y, and Z to help improve the argument that you yourself want to make, right? And so, you know, McCloskey asks a simple question, which is, which one helps you write your paper, right? Stigler doesn't help you write your paper at all. He just tells you you should write the paper he wrote. But Friedman actually gives you how to actually execute better on what you want to do, okay? And so that was one of the rules that we had when we started our interactions with everyone was that we're going to just focus on imminent criticisms rather than transcendent. So that meant that if we had one of our Adam Smith fellows, for example, who was, you know, more or less sympathetic to some other paradigm than our own, we weren't going to sit there and say, that's silly way to do it. We'd say like, oh, you know, can you think about this way or this way or this way that might improve your own argument for why it is you would argue this way. And I think we were, you know, we're committed to civility, uh, listening, um, and, uh, you know, discussion, not debate. So we don't view this as a debate vehicle, but as discussion. So what role does contestation have in that? The role that contestation has in that is that contestation doesn't necessarily have to devolve to debate. All right, contestation doesn't necessarily have to devolve to a war. Contestation can just be challenging. I'm, I'm, I, I'm gonna try to put, it goes back to Paul Lewis. I'm not at war with Paul Lewis. I'm in a contestation with Paul Lewis over different points of emphasis in our interpretation of where Hayekian research program goes forward, all right? Paul thinks I underemphasize some things. I think he overemphasizes other things, right? And we, you know, go back and forth. I'm sure, again, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm sure I frustrate him, you know, at times because he thinks I'm, I'm uh, you know, like uh, a dunderhead and I don't understand his point or whatever. But I've been listening. I listen. I, I really do. And I try to absorb and I try to learn. So that contestation that Paul has provided from my time, even going back to when I was, you know, at NYU or whatever, when I when I first kind of came across Paul, he made he made me always think. 
about how to do things. And so that makes me, I think, I hope better. And I hope I do that for others as well. Maybe I don't, but that's my goal at least would be to do that. And I think as a group, all of us are thinking along those lines. So, you know, you were on both sides of this equation, Chris Coins on both sides of this equation, you know, uh, uh, Virgil's been on both sides of the equation. So you guys can talk better to it. But to me, it, it seems like when you were students, you know, people gave you criticism, but they didn't like tell you my way or the highway, right? You had a lot of degrees of freedom, you get developed. Now you're on the other side and now you're advising people, right? So you're working with, you know, people that have unique talents and skills and interests, and you're trying to help them be able to say those things in better ways than they can personally say them when they first start out, you know? And that's all part of learning. And these volumes and the other volumes in the Mercatus series are all reflections on that aspect of us trying to do that. I was on the other side, but I had Don Lavoy, right? And, and I'm, you know, an imperfect substitute for Don, uh, you know, and, and, but Don was such a giving professor. At the same time, he was very demanding professor. So he, he, he was amazingly giving, but he was amazingly demanding. And, and I think that that mix of what he did with that, you know, was responsible for a lot of whatever I ever did after that it was because of what he did. And I've tried to pay that forward with other people on the other side. And I think that we see that that's the other thing that the last the other thing about the Ostroms cared about education and graduate education in a way that you don't hear Hayek ever talk about, <laughs> right? So Hayek was not like that dedicated to that aspect of the job. Buchanan was, and if you read the UVA years, he really was into it. But then after UVA, he kind of waxed and waned depending on you know the moment of the day or whatever. I was very fortunate to have him um, and he was a great inspiring professor and very, supportive of me and my career. So I have nothing but like great things to say about him. But he didn't think about the educational process of a graduate student the same way that Vincent and Eleanor did. Um, he did in those UVA years. So that's what Wagner's a product of. And so Wagner then communicates that to students, the constant writing, the you know, that kind of stuff that Buchanan taught. Um, and he was like that a little bit in my class as well, uh, you know, in terms of our having to write assignments and him giving us feedback right away. Um, but I think his, his UVA years were his sweet spot when he was really focused on training elite graduate students. And, uh, but, the, but Eleanor, uh, you know, and Vincent, they were, that, was their, that was a big part of their IU program. And uh, that's their family. That's why they have the wow and all the other stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And we've been very influenced by that and tried to mimic aspects of what Eleanor and Vincent did with a little bit more grounding in Mises and Hayek, if, if you think about it that way. So it's like Mises and Hayek and Buchanan, but and especially Mises and Hayek, but a little bit more Ostrom in attitude and approach. And so again, combinatorial thinking all to try to make a progressive research program going forward.
Yeah, I think that the kind of combination and then, you know, the tensions that, that come from that or the, the gaps where we can fix, I think really highlight a lot of what we, you know, what I think I got from training and what we hope to train new students as as well is, you know, sort of how do we constantly think about refining our arguments, learning, kind of stretching the boundaries of what we're doing. I mean, um, we're, so really I think, you know, we're really committed to this issue of the conversation which is reflected in our external programs, but also our internal programs. You know, the number of reading groups, seminars, and discussion groups that we have with the graduate students is, you know, well beyond other places, all right? We have visitors come in all the time, visiting dissertation students and whatnot, and all of them always remark that they can't believe we have a dedicated seminar for the students' graduate student paper workshops in which faculty are part of, right? It's not just the research. So on top of our own research seminar, we have a graduate student paper workshop, which we work with the students to try to help them. But if you just look at like the way we've structured our conversations about, uh, you know, in our different programs, they're all built around this idea of an ongoing and contested conversation. Again, not a debate, a discussion, and in which, uh, no one is trying to um, impose any kind of worldview or methodological view or analytical lens on anyone else. We're just trying to consider all of those things, right? That's the big difference. It's like, like I personally have very strong opinions, right? I don't expect anyone else to share my opinions about what is the right methodology, what's the right analytics, what's the right social uh, and political philosophy of the world. I, I try freely and unencumberedly to, to share that with people in the most sophisticated way that I'm capable of doing it. And it's contested at every single level, right? I throw it out there and it's, and it's accepted in bits and parts and everything like that. It's never accepted in one whole because other people have different things as well. But we're really committed to that as an ideal. Like that's all we that's what we want to do is we want to be able to have a fun conversation about these ideas, which we think are so cool and which could help illuminate things out the window. And even when they're big, hairy things that we think actually affect the life and death of people, right? Like these big development questions or whatever, right? We still don't believe that any of us have a red phone to God, you know, and know exactly what the right answer is. So all we can do is continue to have a conversation. And we want to have that conversation with Adam Smith, with John Stuart Mill, you know, with, with uh, Frank Knight and, and, all, and all of these people that we've been talking about, because we view them as still part of our extended present. They're, you know, Tocqueville, right? Like you ran a, a whole, you know, seminar on Tocqueville a few years ago, right? And it wasn't like we went in there and said like, Tocqueville had it right. Let's like read Tocqueville and get the wisdom of Tocqueville for all of time. It was like, what kind of questions was Tocqueville, Tocqueville asking that we're still asking today? Like, those are pretty cool questions, aren't they? About community, about civil society, all this kind of thing. Like, we're still trying to grapple with those questions today. And Tocqueville highlighted those. So like, you know, how would we highlight them in our conversation today? And I think that's, if anyone ever was a fly on the wall, that's what they would see at all the different things. And when you have an ongoing conversation, 
it generates, it enlists people's curiosity and, and makes them want to actually, you know, engage in, in, in exploiting that curiosity. And I think that explains the productivity that one sees as well. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of an interesting way to think about this is, you know, we're often studying these messy processes of flawed humans trying to live better together, like yeah. you say, but we're also flawed humans in the process of studying. And so, you know, I think one of the things that the series brings out is that, you know, even these really smart, impressive, um, prolific thinkers are flawed. Yeah, yeah. And we are too in how we think about it. So hopefully, you know, hopefully with these volumes, there's a lot of questions that can be filled by future research. I and that, like you said, it's the, the beginning. I always tell the difference, sorry for talking over you, but but the point about questions was an important one because I, I always describe the difference between, I, I was very fortunate. I had both Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock as a teacher. And what I always tell everyone is that the difference between Tullock and Buchanan can be summed up as follows, okay? There was never a question that was ever asked in a Buchanan class that he didn't, even the dumbest question, okay, that he didn't somehow turn into a brilliant question to be able to then spur conversation. And he always ended each class with a question for us to ponder for the following week. Tullock could never find the most brilliant question, which he wouldn't tear apart and to make it sound like you were silly. And he would end class with a declarative statement about the way things are. And that would be, you know, now that he, that means it's a hypothesis and he puts it out there and he boldly states it. But like, you know, you would go out of the class and there's a difference between those two things. One of them being like a declarative, another one being an open question about like, you know, what do you think about this? Like, think about that. And, and I think the difference between those two is really kind of drastic. And we have tended to try to hopefully be more like Buchanan, which is that we, we want to ask questions and provide answers which open up more questions. So in that sense, we really do embrace this idea of knowledge as a growing sphere. And the more that we know, the more we know we don't know kind of idea. And that that's how science uh, you know, progresses, that science operates on the knife edge of error at all times. That doesn't, you know, people misunderstand what that means, but this is a, it's, it's, it's just, this is just a growth of knowledge idea. And this is why, you know, Lavoie in the National Economic Planning, his appendix is an appendix about growth of knowledge. It's about scientific knowledge and then arts and, co and commerce and things like that. And that's about like the progress of those things. And as opposed to the idea of that science is capable of any kind of, you know, resting point, right? So again, this raises questions about the way we think about these things applied to policy and society and everything. I don't want to go down that route, but it, it, you know, it drives me nuts when people talk about, you know, listen to the science. Yes, listen to the science. The science is ongoing and learning, especially science in real time, right? And so, you know, we, that doesn't mean that we're trying to be confusing or, you know, any kind of thing like that. It's just understand that science is about contestation. It, you know, science is never settled. When science is presumed to be settled and complete, that's when dogma sets in. That's when we have all kinds of other problems in society. So science in a free society is fundamental to what we're trying to do. And it's a very ongoing and growing process. 
and identifying, just to bring it back, identifying these tensions, anomalies, paradoxes, holes and arguments, these kind of things, they're not meant to uh, poke a hole in some previous thinker and say, ha ha, we gotcha, and then you're done. It's meant to see like, wow, what are the areas that are involved in that that are pregnant with possibilities? Because you didn't finish those. Now, I am gonna admit you know, to you, you've probably heard me say this before, and to the world, <laughs> you know, that I am fully aware that when I read someone like a Marta Sen, who I am not, I, I, I'm very, you know, uh, impressed by him, but I think he's, I don't always think he's right, that when I see him run into confusions, I go, ah, he's confused. Where when I read Hayek and I see him be confused, I go, oh, isn't this amazing? Hayek is opening up so much space for future work or whatever. I understand that that's a preference issue that's like flawed. And understand this goes back to your point about flawed people. Um, in real time, I might not reference it, right? I might think like, oh, you know, sure, Hayek is, is pregnant with possibilities. Sen is just flawed and therefore we should reject him. But the reality is, is that there's so much interesting things to learn from people if you don't expect them to be perfect but you expect them to be like guideposts that are like, you know, flashlights that, that suggest to you where you might look. Um, and, and that that by taking that flashlight and looking over there, you might go further and then recognizing that if they've illuminated that, they probably have clouded out something over here. So part of the benefit of combinatorial thinking is switching that. So, you know, again, Hayek, might be very blind about notions of implicit power relations. Eleanor's not. Yeah. Right. So if I'm both thinking about spontaneous order theories, I can think about Hayek's theories, but then, and I don't change that I'm talking about spontaneous orders, but I'm recognizing that spontaneous orders aren't benevolent just because they're spontaneous, right? They might actually have something else. And Lynn tells me about how I might look at those and what rules might bring forth that more than others, right? And if I'm looking about entrepreneurship, you know, yes, Kersner's right that it's about alertness to the opportunities. But again, Lynn gives us an, a window into, you know, why it is, what institutional environments actually are conducive to alerting us to pursuing those opportunities or what opportunities would be in our interest to pursue are a function of, of that. And so by giving that emphasis on it, we move into a new space, even though we're building on Kersner's original idea about the entrepreneurial function in a society, but we're pushing it out into new areas because Eleanor tells us where to look, you know, for it and stuff. And so, again, I see these people as all adding to us, but not ever sealing us off from other new ideas. So, Great. Well, I think with that, we can kind of, you know, hope others see the uh, kind of pregnant possibilities of these books and, and we get to keep asking these questions and having these conversations. So thank you. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I really uh, appreciate everything that uh, you do for the program and for our research program and our teaching efforts and, and what we're doing. And these books are just part of that and just the beginning. They're our first three not our last ones by any stretch of the imagination. So thank you and your team and uh, this is great stuff.
Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.